0: Jesus said to the disciples on the last night he was with them, I am the real vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off any of my branches that does not bear fruit. He trims clean to make it bear more fruit. You're already clean thanks to the word I've spoken to you, so remain in me and I, as I remain in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself without remaining on the vine, so neither can you bear fruit without remaining in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who remains in me and I in him is the one who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If a man does not remain in me, he's like a branch cast off and withered, which they collect and throw into the fire to be burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it'll be done for you. My Father's been glorified in this, in your bearing much fruit and becoming my disciple's. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Remain in my love. And, if, and, and you will remain in my love if you keep my commandments. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've said this to you so that my joy may be yours and your joy may be fulfilled. This is my commandment. Love one another. As I've loved you. No man can have greater love than this, to lay down his life for those he loves. You're the ones I love when you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not understand what his master is doing. Rather, I've called you my beloved, for I revealed to you everything I heard from the Father. It was not you who chose me, it was I who chose you, and I appointed you to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will remain, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. This I command you, love one another. Probably not many of you have had the opportunity or the responsibility of being at somebody's deathbed. It's something, uh, partly because of my role as a pastor, I wind up being there maybe more often than most. But all of us will wind up there sometime at somebody's deathbed whom we care about. And of course, there'll come that moment when we'll be the one on the bed. And when we're the one on the bed, I can guarantee that, as some have said, we won't want one last look at our portfolio or our stocks or our resume. We won't want one more look at uh, our big house or our small house. What we'll want is our friends and family around us. Dr. Johnson it was said, uh, said, there's nothing that so clarifies the mind as the knowledge that you're going to be hanged in the morning. It has, it has a way of clarifying priorities. It has a way of bringing into focus what's really important. Jesus was on his deathbed one night. It wasn't a bed, and it wasn't a mournful gathering, but he knew he would be hanged in the morning. The others didn't, though he told them. And they began to grieve deeply when he did, though they didn't understand it. And his deathbed was a dinner table. He invited his best friends together. He invited the twelve who had followed him. I think there's a good chance that the women of Luke 8 were there. Because Luke 8 says they followed Jesus from city to city all throughout Galilee and down to Jerusalem. And they were there with him when he was hanged in the morning. And they were there to take his body down. And they were there to anoint the body. And they were there when he rose from the dead. And my guess is they may have been there in the the upper room at his deathbed. If I was going to die tomorrow, I would call my family around me and I'd want to tell Jason something specific. And I'd have a word for his wife, Christy. And I'd have a word for my grandchild, Caleb. And I'd have a word for my daughter, Angela, and her husband, Dave. And I'd have a word for my son, Joel. And I'd have a word for my wife, Linda. I'd have very specific thoughts. I would say the most important things I had to say. And I would, I would put them forth in that setting. That's what Jesus did at the what we call the Last Supper. It was his last supper with his disciples. He saved his most important words, and John, thank heavens, wrote many of those down. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote fewer of them down. And John, writing later than the other three, in my opinion, looked at those three and said, I want to compliment what they said. Matthew told us some things that Luke didn't, and Luke told us some things that Matthew didn't, and Mark covered some things that neither of the other two had. And then John said, but they didn't tell us much about that last night. And so from chapter 13 through chapter 17, we have the words of Jesus Christ from his deathbed. And we're going to concentrate on those words in the next three to four messages that I give. But I want to go right to the middle of those words and pick out one section that I think illuminates both what comes before and what comes after. What comes before is that He washes their feet. What comes before is that He talks about obedience. What comes today that we're going to look at is that He talks about what it is to be in union with Him. What comes after that is He talks about how to make it through persecution. And what comes at the end is his admonition to stay unified above all things. But I think to understand how to serve, which happens in 13, how to obey, which happens in 14, how to love one another, which happens in 15 and 13, how to face persecution, which happens in 16, and how in chapter 17 to learn to live in a unified way, all centers on what he says in this passage we read this morning. I am the true vine. And you are the branches. My Father is the gardener. I am the true vine. In the Gospel of John, have you ever noticed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like a man who goes out and sows seed in the field. The kingdom of God is like a person who throws a net out and pulls in the fish. The kingdom of God is like this and like that. And yet, you read the Gospel of John, he never says the kingdom of God. Have you ever wondered? Is this the same Jesus? Was John following the same person? How come he never mentions the kingdom of God in the entire Gospel of John? Every place John would want to say the kingdom of God, he's chosen a new and a fresh way to say it. Another way that Jesus said the same thing, he's chosen the words, I am. I am the the life. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And I am the vine, the true vine, the genuine vine. Now, I, I shared this in one place, uh, actually when I was in Washington at the alumni meeting, and afterwards Amy Meyer, our former student body president, was telling me she had a guest there who wasn't a Westmont alum, and, and, he, and he hadn't been around the Christian community much, and so he wasn't familiar with this image of a vine and branches, and all he could picture was Jack and the Beanstalk. And so he thought I was encouraging people to, you know, be courageous and climb up the beanstalk. And I thought, well, that's a good image. It's not, it, it certainly isn't quite what Jesus had in mind. So a little a lesson in agriculture here might be appropriate. The vine, if you've got, driven by a vineyard, the vine comes up and it only stands this high. And an old vine is very thick, sometimes four to six inches thick. And then it's cut off at the top. It's just this stump-like. And, and then when the when the growth begins to come, they, they train the vines, that is the branches that come off of the main vine, they train the branches to run out like this, long wires. And they'll go, I'm not sure how long, but I would guess 50 to 100 feet out, and they entangle with each other, and then the, the grapes are produced, and they can clip them off. And then each year they cut it back to the first bud the first year, the second bud the next year, etc. So that if you came during the winter, you would see just this stump. With little tiny branches this big. But if you came right before harvest, those branches would have extended all the way out. That's the image Jesus had. In fact, some of the vines would actually grow up over trellises and form uh, uh, an atrium-like. Something like what we have uh, in the springtime up by the prayer chapel. That would be the image he was talking about. When I was visiting Sri Lanka with Dr. Jaywarden and 17 of our students, we visited the biggest vine in the world. It went for acres and acres and acres. I can't. We followed this vine, and it just... The branches from it, we followed the branches, is what we followed. We followed the branches. They went literally for miles and miles in this jungle area. And we kept trying to find the vine. And we finally found where it began, and all 17 of us could stand on it. It was as big around as, as a huge tree, and we all, 17, climbed up on it. And this one stump, so to speak, was feeding all these these branches out acres and acres away. Jesus said, I am the noble vine. I am the genuine vine. You could translate that either way. I am the real thing. Now, what was he... Whenever you see that word in the scripture, I am the real this, he's got something in his mind that maybe he's being confused with the real thing. He said, I'm the genuine vine. If you stay a part of me, you will be fed by the sap... And you will produce fruit naturally. But if you stay attached by implication to a vine that is not the genuine vine, you will not produce naturally the fruit of Jesus Christ. He says it in no uncertain terms. Some scholars that believe that throughout the Gospel of John, he is contrasting himself, Jesus, with the the, uh, synagogue, the institutional church of the day. If that's true, it raises some tough questions for us. I know people that have substituted the good the good part of the local church for Jesus himself. They trust in the local church more than they trust in Jesus. They fellowship in the local church more than they fellowship in Jesus. The role of the local church is meant to graft us into the vine of Jesus himself. Some people make the Bible the real vine. It's not. Jesus tells us that in John 5. He says to the the Bible scholars of the day, you pour over the scriptures and yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You see, there are good other vines that are not the genuine vine. The Bible we should be studying and learning from all the time in order to graft our lives more deeply into Jesus Christ, not into the Bible. See, the Bible is a signpost to Jesus Christ. The church is a signpost to Jesus Christ and one another, as is the Scripture. And there are many others. Certainly, John had in mind the tree of life in Genesis, and Jesus had it in mind. The tree that brings life. In the Old Testament, there was an image that there was a tree of wisdom that would bring forth fruit to men and women who studied her. Those images, I think, are behind this. And then in the Old Testament, Israel was called the true vine. In Jeremiah 2, God says, I planted you a true vine. Why have you left me? Why have you deserted me? Why have you gone after whores? So in contrast, he says, I planted you a true vine, but you've become a wild one. Jesus comes along and says, I am the genuine vine. And it raises a question. Are we hooked in to the genuine vine? You know, I've never seen a grapevine get anxious about producing grapes. I've never seen an apple tree that needed a psychiatrist, you know, that said, Oh my gosh, I gotta get some apples out here in June, you know, and there's nothing popping out at the end, they're just those stupid flowers and you know, if I could if I could just shake those flowers up, maybe we could get a an apple to pop out or You know, I've never seen an orange tree strain itself to produce oranges. You know, if a branch just kind of hangs in there, it, it all works okay. Because the branch is a conduit. Why are Christian people so strained, so hurried, so pinched, so nervous, so so busy about trying to produce the fruit that Jesus says is meant to come naturally because it's his fruit. If we stay attached to the trunk, that is the vine, and we're the branch, we will naturally produce fruit. It's not a strained thing. And he says it's an impossible thing to do if you are cut off. I mean, the image is obvious. You cut a branch off, it's not going to produce anything. It's a very harsh image, isn't it? John, all through his gospel, has a harsh dualism. You're either a follower of Jesus or you're not. You're either producing fruit or you're not even in the the vine. I mean, he would have none of this in-between stage. Well, gee, you're in the vine, but you're, you know... You know, you don't ever produce fruit. He'd say, heck no. If that was the case, the gardener would just come along and lop you off. If you're in Jesus, you will naturally produce fruit because it is Jesus' life through the Holy Spirit that will flow through you. One scholar said this, If we remain in Jesus through faith, he will remain in us through love and fruitfulness. Jesus says, remain in me, remain in my love, let my words remain in you. Remain in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. But the plain fact is, apart from me, you can do nothing at all. The J.B. Phillips translation of that passage. Apart from me, the plain fact is, you can do nothing at all. I guarantee you, there'll come a day when you'll be on your deathbed and you'll realize the truth of that statement. Anything that's done for Christ will be a lasting fruit. Anything that's done, better said, through Christ. Better said, anything that Christ does through you will last. Your role is to deepen your roots into Him. In Colossians, it says, just as you receive the Lord, so go on growing in Him, rooted and built up in the faith, the trust that you've learned in Him as you were taught it. We're supposed to sink our roots in a little different image into Jesus Christ. He says, I'm the real vine, not the false vine. Remain in my love, and you will bear much fruit. Now, let's ask the question, what kind of fruit would a branch bear that was grafted into Jesus Christ? What would it look like? And the most natural image is that it would be a virtuous life. That's how I've always preached this passage, frankly. And in studying it this last week, A new insight, for me at least, an intellectual insight into this passage, has completely changed my mind about the meaning of that. I'd always pictured it, the fruit, as somebody somebody who's got the fruit of the Spirit. As in Galatians 5. Well, John hadn't read Galatians 5. He certainly wasn't thinking about that. Now, that may be true. In fact, I think it is true that a person living in Christ would exhibit those fruits because they are the fruits of the Spirit. But that's not what John probably had in mind here. Because he gives us a hint. This is where those of you taking Dr. Gundy's Greek class will have a leg up on some of the others. You go check it out, see if I'm right. John uses a word that doesn't come across in English very well. And you don't hear me often explicate Greek up here. Because often it doesn't make a huge difference. Sometimes it does. In this this particular case it does. And that's one of the reasons we study the original languages. When when Jesus says, I command you to love one another, and there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for another. The word to lay down your life for is is the same word as the word later when he says, I've appointed you to produce much fruit, to bear much fruit. It's the word tithonai. It can mean two completely different things. It can mean lay something down, as in lay down your life. Or it can mean, I'm going to appoint Diane to sing a song after I preach. Which I may do, by the way. Now, you know, we have words like that in English. We say, you went out for a run, and we say, you left the water running. Uh, We don't think the water has legs and is running. It's two different, completely different meanings for the exact same word. And we get used to it. Well, in Greek, he had this... But he chose this and it's somewhat... Raymond Brown says it's it's, it's actually fairly awkward in the Greek here. And it would jump out to a Greek reader. Love one another as I've loved you. And there's no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for another. I appoint you. I lay you down. I appoint you to bear much fruit. And he says that the bearing of fruit, and I agree with this comment, is the primary is the primary view that Jesus had of what fruit is. The fruitful person is a person who obeys the commandment which he gives in this very passage, which is to love as he loved, which is to lay down our lives for each other, which is the theme of everything he's saying from chapter 13 to chapter 17 because he said, my hour has come. I'm about to lay down my life for you. I'm about to prove to how genuine my love is. ...in a very specific moment in time. It's interesting. If this is true, if the bearing of fruit... And you think about it, wrestle with it. It's a new thought to me. If this is true that the bearing of fruit... ...is our ability to love each other... ...the way Jesus Christ loved the twelve... ...and the women of Luke 8... ...then he describes it. That it would show itself in a laying down of our lives for each other. If this was true it would seem to me that we should do church discipline for people that don't lay down their lives for each other. Can you imagine that? The elders get together. They say, you know, George McGillicuddy in the congregation, uh, we're going to try to see if he's really living in Christ. Well, he's living in sin. And so we better call him into church discipline. Why? Well, because he's not laying down his life for his friends. You know, his friend is deep in debt and he's got lots of money. And George McGillicuddy hasn't even thought about giving his friends some money. So let's call him in and face the elders. Because he's not bearing the fruit of Jesus Christ. No, we don't do that, do we? we? We pick a whole bunch of other sins that Jesus forgave fairly easily for our church disciplines. And yet in the central one, which he speaks about on his deathbed, and he says over and over again, this is my commandment. In John 13, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. He'd never apparently said this in this form, in a command form to them before. Love one another as I've loved you. In John 15, he describes it. It's laying down your life. At the end of John 15, he says, look, this I command you, love one another. That's how he ends that, that, that discourse. And it's an interesting thought that you can command someone to love. That means it must be a choice. Ignatius of Antioch was on his way to be killed for following Jesus Christ. He he was in the century right after the first century, actually at the end of the first and beginning of the next, the end of the beginning of the second. Uh, he was on his way to be killed. Some saw him as a second Paul sort of figure. And when he was on his way to lay down his life, he was the bishop, when he was on his way to literally lay down his life for his flock, he made an interesting comment. He said to a few of his friends who were walking with him toward his execution, he said, only now am I beginning to be a disciple. Only now. Because I'm laying down my life. He understood that the bearing of fruit came from staying attached to Jesus and it resulted naturally in the laying down of one's life. So I'd ask these questions in closing. Are you staying attached to Jesus Christ? Are you in union with Jesus Christ? Do you feel His blood coursing through your veins, not just at communion services, but throughout the day in calculus class? in the dorm. It's supposed to be. His blood is supposed to be pumping through your heart. His thoughts are supposed to be pumping through your mind. His actions are supposed to be uh, emanating from your life. Are they? Well, there's one good way to find out. Are you tending to lay down your life for your friends? Another scholar says that because agape love is the love that makes itself manifest, that the followers of Jesus will always be marked by a tendency towards self-sacrifice. Are you? Or are you always looking out for your rights? A very American thought, but not a particularly New Testament thought. Are you staying attached to Jesus Christ, or have you attached yourself to some other secondary thing, as good or as bad as that may be?